Thank you, Rick. You are a gift to this church, so we thank God for you. Good morning once again. I invite you to go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and open it to the New Testament book of Luke. And uh, it's kind of funny that Steve mentioned, uh, you know, that there's been much bloodshed to bring us this Word of God that we have in our hands here today, because that's exactly what I was going to mention to you as you do that. Many around the world don't have the privilege that we do in uh, enjoying what we have right before us and being able to open the scriptures without fear and also having the scriptures in their own language. So I hope this morning as you open up to the gospel of Luke that you join me in giving thanks to the Lord for being able to do so. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 1 and we'll be reading from verses 67 through 80 this morning. But uh, we're going to only make it um, part way to verse 75. So verse 68 through 75 is really only one sentence in the Greek. And so we'll stop there today. We'll finish chapter 1 next week. And uh, then Steve will take us into chapter 2, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you will, Luke chapter 1, reading verses 67 through 80. And if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, let's do so as we get into our text this morning. Starting in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, verse 67 of God's word says this, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is such a gift to us, but Lord, so many times we neglect it. We cast it off to the side because we claim we're too busy. And so, Father, forgive us. Help us to study your word daily because it is a means of grace and we can know you by it. We can walk with you more intimately. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and help this time that we spend here today glorify your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I mean, every time I sing and worship and song, and it usually takes a little bit of the, kind of brings along the uh, cotton mouth with it. So, 
Anyway, well, we've been looking into what Dr. Luke has been uh, telling us about the birth of the Messiah. And if you remember from the very beginning of our study of this incredible gospel, you'll recall the completeness and the fullness with which Luke brings to us in his writings. He tells us that he has investigated everything carefully and he's compiled the events in consecutive order, as verse 3 told us. Not only does he give us a little bit of background into the miraculous virgin conception of the Messiah, but he also gives us a glimpse into the supernatural events that surround the birth of the forerunner to the Messiah, and that is of John the Baptist. Matthew doesn't do it, Mark doesn't do it, John doesn't do it, only Luke records for us this account in the, of the birth of John. Now, historically, just so you know where we're at, we're looking at a time period that's right around 5 B.C. Now, you might be scratching your head a little bit and saying, well, wasn't Jesus born on one or zero or whatever? What's the deal there? Well, first of all, there is no date zero in our calendar, okay? And there is only a 1 B.C. or 1 A.D. And, of course, A.D. and B.C. meaning before Christ, or Anno Domini, not after death, but in the year of our Lord. And uh, so this was because of a monk in about 525 AD. He set out to determine the date of the birth of Jesus, and his name was Dionysius the Little. He miscalculated the date of the birth of Jesus, and by the time it was caught, it was a little too little, too late. It'd be sort of like us spending thousands of dollars to print out flyers that say Grace Fellowship Church, and we only have one L in fellowship. You know, we might just kind of let it roll. But as time marched on and the era of Dionysius was caught, the date was already firmly established, which is why he may have the nickname Dionysius the Little and not Dionysius the Smart or Dionysius the Accurate, right? So when you're talking about someone about the significance of the year 2014 and being based off the birth of Christ, and they try to trip you up and say, well, he was born around 5 BC, you're not going to be blindsided. You can argue about the numbers and the dates and Christmas being December 25th and all kinds of really non-consequential things. But the fact remains that there has been never in the history of the world anyone who has claimed to be God, who has shown the way of peace to God, lived a sinless life, died an innocent man, and bore the sins of his people. No one has had more written about him and provided rational and logical and reasonable answers to the great questions of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There are not many pathways to God. Oprah Winfrey is not telling you the truth, okay? We're not all on a journey up the side of the mountain to get to the mountaintop to be with God, and you can call him whatever you want. If there were actually many pathways to God, think about this. If there are many pathways to God, then Jesus Christ died for absolutely nothing. But as it is, we're looking at this account. We're looking at actual events that happened in an actual place with actual people in times past, and they occurred roughly around 2019 years ago. So as Steve covered with you a little bit last week, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of mystery, and a realization that something incredible was happening in the hillside of Judea. And it was all surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. It's, it's sort of like what we see here at this church. 
when you look at how God has moved in our hearts to, to plant a church, and when God has provided a building for us to meet in, it, it's unheard of. God provided a church sponsor, and he keeps bringing people in the front doors. We've been here since September, and all of us are amazed at, that all of you are here. This should drive us to gratitude and dependence and worship. And there's no other way to explain it. And so it is with the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist here. But I would say this excitement probably was magnified tenfold, to say the least. His father, Zacharias, if you remember, he was struck by mutinous mutinous by the angel Gabriel. He couldn't talk because he had given him a message from the Lord. And that message was that he and his wife were going to have a son. And that son would be the forerunner to the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. We saw that back in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 1. And not only that, but the angel declared to Zacharias that he would remain mute and unable to speak until the very day that everything he told him would come to pass. We saw that in verse 20. And now why was that? Because he doubted the Lord. He didn't take God at his word. He didn't trust in the God that he claimed to worship and serve and teach. And so as John is born and the neighbors see the elderly, this elderly lady having a son and, and they marvel at how Elizabeth and Zacharias simultaneously confirm that his name will be John. Elizabeth verbally and, and Zacharias in writing on a tablet, everyone is astonished. This is not the typical thing to do. The child typically would be named after the father. But not in this case. You know who named the boy? It was God. God had chosen his name. He said, you will name him John. God had told Zacharias that he would have a son and he would name him John. And so the Judean gossip network, if you will, is on high alert. All right? There's something going on in this household. And so as they realize this, something incredible is going on, they're recognizing that God is involved. Undoubtedly, there would have been questions as to why Zacharias couldn't talk in the first place. His job as a priest would have been to come back and teach the people, teach them the things of God. And there is no doubt that they would have questioned, why can he not talk? He just went to Jerusalem. What in the world happened there that he went to serve in the temple and now he can't talk? Why is he mute? And how in the world is his wife pregnant now? She's old. She's barren. So now as these events transpire, they're just marveling at them all. And so in verse 66, they ask this question as they look at all these things going on. What then will this child be? And that's where we pick up in our text today. It is essentially answering that question. What then will this child turn out to be? More so, we're going to learn next week more about John the Baptist. But if you'll remember from just a couple of weeks ago, when we essentially looked at Mary's exclamation of praise, we noted that it was called the Magnificat, not can't, there's no N on the end. But this week, as we look at Zachariah's exclamation of praise, it is called the Benedictus. They come from the Latin Vulgate, and it is the first word that comes out of their mouth. And Zacharias simply means blessing. Benedictus means blessing, which is what he was actually supposed to do in the first place, if you think about it. When he went in to offer the incense at the altar of incense, he was supposed to come out and pronounce a blessing, but he couldn't do that. And so this word, Benedictus, 
means blessing, which, by the way, is how Mary's praise is also named from the first word that comes out of her mouth. And so as we look at our text this morning, starting in verse 67, the Benedictus, if you will, it reads, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Now, if you've been awake and you've been keeping notes and keeping track, this is the third time that someone has been filled with the Holy Spirit in the, chap- in the first chapter of Luke alone. And it won't be the last time that Luke uses this phrase. He'll utilize this term as he continues writing on in the book of Acts. And remember, Luke and Acts is really like a two-volume set from the same author. Gabriel told Zacharias that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. We saw that in verse 15. Elizabeth, then, is filled with the Holy Spirit when her relative Mary came over for a visit. And we saw that back in verse 41. And now we see Zacharias is now filled with the Holy Spirit. The whole family has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's the result? The result is Spirit-inspired praise, right? We saw Elizabeth do it after she was filled with the Holy Spirit back in verse 41, because in 42, it says that she cried out with a loud voice, and she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Remember, little John the Baptist, he's inside of his mother's womb when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he couldn't even speak audibly, but Scripture says that he leaped with joy inside of Elizabeth back in verse 44. For you new school people, that would be like going a kid going to pump it up. For you old school people, that would be like a kid going to romper room. Okay, there's a difference there. He's inside having a dance party inside of Elizabeth. He's communicating in the only way that he knows how at this point, and that is to leap with joy. In the book of Acts, there's several times where individuals, they're filled, or groups of individuals, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? Every time... They speak, and they speak boldly. You'll see that in Acts 2.4, Acts 4.8, 4.31, 9.17, 13.9. Every time in those texts, they speak boldly. You and I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as believers. Romans 8.9 tells us that. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 tells us that. In fact, Romans 8.9-11 says, However... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. If you are a believer today in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. There's no secondary filling of the Holy Spirit. There's not this point where you get saved and then later on, sometime later, you get the Holy Spirit. No. Most charismatic churches teach this. In fact, they claim that you haven't received the Holy Spirit unless you do what? Speak in tongues, right? If you haven't spoken in tongues, there's no salvation, there's no filling of the Holy Spirit, and that's going to happen sometime later in your life. It's an evidence that you've received the Holy Spirit, according to charismatic churches. 
Now, we're not going to get into tongues too much here today, but just know that there's no scriptural evidence to suggest that speaking in tongues is a confirmation that you are filled with the Spirit. Matter of fact, you and I were called to be filled with the Holy Spirit by doing what? Speaking, right? Ephesians 5, 18, 19 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. By doing what? It says 19, in verse 19 of Ephesians 5, speaking. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart with your heart to the Lord. And so Zacharias, as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he does just that. He speaks, and it says in verse 67 exactly, specifically, how he does that. And it says that he prophesied. Now, what does this exactly mean? Well, many of us are familiar with books of prophecy, right? Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, which tell of future events. And some of us are familiar with Old Testament prophets, ones who spoke boldly for God. So prophecy can have a twofold purpose. One is foretelling. Foretelling is declaring future events. You can imagine somebody golfing and yelling forward and that ball's going forward. That's foretelling. Forthtelling is another way, and it is boldly declaring a message from God to address current events. I got to take you on a little sidetrack here because this is just what we're going to do. But I got to make you aware that right now, In evangelicalism, there is a group out of Kansas City that is gaining a lot of popularity nationwide, and it's a group called IHOP. And it's not International House of Pancakes. It's called the International House of Prayer. This group advocates and calls for a literal 24 hours of prayer in these prayer houses all over the country, right? Well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? What you may not know is that this group is founded by a group of guys who call themselves the Kansas City Prophets, okay? There's four of them, and hopefully your discernment radar just went up a little bit with that title of people running around calling themselves the Kansas City Prophets, but they claim that they make prophecies for God, and they claim that they are declaring future events that are going to happen. Now, what's the problem with that? You know what the problem is? 80%. 80% of the things that they say are going to happen in the future, they don't happen. Only 20%, roughly 20% comes true. And you know what they say? They say, well, we're going to keep on prophesying because we want that little nugget of 20% of truth. Right? Beloved, let me tell you something. If someone comes to you and claims to be a prophet of God, run away. And if 80% of what they tell you does not come true run faster, okay? One of the evidences of truth of somebody being a prophet is that it will be absolutely, unequivocally, 100% truth. If it's divinely inspired, if the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is going to speak through you, it has to be true, because whatever God speaks is truth. He cannot lie. Second Peter 1.21 tells us, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So please, please, please be aware that there's groups running around out there. They're all over Facebook, they're all over social media, and people are just 
blindly following these groups. So check out a little bit about these people before you get on there and like their status, okay? I'm going to digress. But what we see here with Zacharias essentially is a divinely inspired commentary on the events that have just happened. And guess what? They're 100% true. A foretelling and a foretelling, if you will. Now, with the birth of his son in his old age, and with the visitation of the angel in the temple, and with nine months of inability to speak, Zacharias is absolutely certain that God's plan is underway. If he ever doubted before, that is completely gone. So what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Praise. He praises the Lord. He says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So as we've been looking at these varying accounts between the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, one of the first things that we can see in the difference between Mary's praise and Zacharias' praise is that Mary gives praise to the Lord for some personal things. Zacharias here gives praise to the Lord for national needs, and that is redemption. Redemption for Israel. He praises the Lord for visiting them and accomplishing redemption. In fact, Zacharias' words here in this whole section is very nationalistic, and we'll look at this a little bit more in detail later. He mentions that God is the God of Israel, that salvation has come from the line of David, that God is a keeper of covenants, and so on and so forth. And just like Mary's praise, Zacharias' praise here is filled with Old Testament illustrations. Now, as we mentioned before, a visitation from God's messenger, it can either be a good thing or a bad thing. And that's why when you typically read that an angel of the Lord visited someone, one of the first things that, that comes out of their mouth, do not be afraid, right? You don't know which way it's really going to go. It could be for judgment or it could be for blessing. But in the case of Zacharias, it was a good thing. It was a great thing. God broke 400 years of silence to Zacharias. And so after nine months of contemplation and meditation and reflection and thinking about what Gabriel had said to him inside that temple, Zacharias had to be, just had to be incredibly excited. And in that excitement, the first thing that he does is he praises the Lord and he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. And then he essentially tells us of the why. Why should praise belong to God? Because he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Let me ask you a question. Does life ever get tough for you? Does it seem like there's nothing, absolutely nothing going your way? Do you seem to face trial after trial after fiery trial? Don't give up hope. You can always praise God for redemption, believer. No matter how bad things are, you can thank God for salvation. If all you have in this life, if all you have is hardship and poverty and suffering, and yet you are redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have absolutely Every single thing you need for all of eternity. 
Your greatest need in this life is not riches. It's not fame. It's not excellent health. Your greatest need in this life is redemption. Because one day, you and I are going to face the judge of this earth. And you want to settle out of court before it's too late. Mark 8.36 tells us, For what does it profit a man that he should gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? So what's Zacharias thankful for? What's the first thing that drives his praise? It's salvation. Salvation for God's chosen people, Israel, which Zacharias would have been a part of. And he would have been a part of in an incredibly major way. And so then, in verse 69, looking at our text, a continuation of this thought of salvation for God's people, when it says... In verse 69, he has, or, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, the horn of salvation in this text would have been an Old Testament symbol of power and strength. The power to conquer would have been in view here, like that of a large animal. If you've ever been to one of those drive-through parks and you go to Holmes County, they have Rolling Ridge Ranch up there and all kinds of places around here. You've got these cows walking around with these massive horns. And as these massive horns come up to eat out of your bucket, you want to stay away because they will take you out, right? You sort of like put the bucket out there and then you kind of just leave the bucket and walk away because you do not want to get tangled up with that horn. And so this imagery that Zacharias is employing here would have been the same has been a praise that God's visitation is raising up a powerful Messiah who will deliver a nation. Listen to what David said in 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through, 1 through 3, and all the imagery that he uses to describe the strength and the power of God. And starting in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 22. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and here it is, and the horn of my salvation. He is strong my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. You see, our God, He is strong. Our God, He is mighty. Our God is immovable. Now, why does He have to be that way? Why does He have to be so strong? Because I'll tell you one person I know in this church right now, I know his heart better than anybody else and that is Matt Gleason. And I need a mighty Savior. I need a strong Savior. I need a mighty God who can rescue me. But Zacharias continues on, and he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant. Now, we've covered this in the past weeks Uh, of how Jesus as the Messiah was of the line and of the house of David. And we're not going to belabor this too long this morning. But in a legal sense, through Joseph as the adoptive father, Jesus was of the line and the house of David. And also through Mary, in a physical sense, Jesus would have been of the lineage of David, just as God had promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. 
Solomon didn't fulfill that promise. Although he was wise and he was a regal king, he failed miserably in the marriage department and he failed miserably in the parental department. Okay, with his sons Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom divides after uh, Solomon steps down from the throne. They split Israel into two kingdoms. So again, in this text here, Zacharias is recognizing the covenant that God has made with David and knows that the promised Messiah would be of the line and the lineage and the house of David, and Jesus fulfilled that promise. So how did he know that the promised Messiah would be of the house and lineage of David? Look at verse 70 with me. It says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Well, what did the holy prophets of old say? Listen to Jeremiah 23, 5. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. So who is Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. You can see that in Matthew 1.6 as you read the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could spend a great, great deal of time covering, or covering the covenant made to David and how God spoke through his holy prophets and, and the fulfillment of that covenant because there are over 40-some passages in the Old Testament that relate directly to this, such as Psalm 89 and Psalm 110. But for the brevity of time, we've got to keep moving. But let me give you just one more verse. It sort of ties together verse 69 and 70 of our text, and that is Psalm 132, verse 13 through 17. It says this, For the Lord has chosen Zion... He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priest also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. Now verse 17, listen to this. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth, the strength of David. I have prepared a lamp. For mine anointed, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. So let's continue on looking at our text here, starting at verse 71. Zechariah says, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So what is Zacharias looking to be saved from? Well, it's really a twofold answer. As I mentioned before, Zacharias' words here have very nationalistic overtones. And in a large sense, Zechariah is looking forward to the day when Israel will once again shine politically just as they did in the times of David and Solomon. And so in a real sense, Zacharias is looking for deliverance from the hand of the occupying Romans. Since 722 B.C., Israel has not had a very good track record in terms of national peace. It was the Assyrians in 722 B.C. that came and destroyed the northern kingdoms of Israel. It was in 586 that the Babylonians came and destroyed and took over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, in 538 B.C., the Persians then took over. 
then the Greeks in 332 B.C., and finally the Romans dominated the Greeks in 63 B.C. Other than an 80-year period of the Maccabean Revolt in 142, do you see any such time of peace in Israel? And so Zacharias, he's looking for deliverance, political deliverance for national Israel. Even the disciples, they were looking for deliverance. When Jesus was ascending in Acts 1-6, they say, Is it now, Lord? Is it now that you are restoring your kingdom to Israel? And so Zacharias is looking for this messianic kingdom to be established. And then looking at verse 72 and 73, which says, To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. So what was the oath that he swore to Abraham? It was a covenant of mercy. God promised that he would take a people, an undeserving people, and demonstrate mercy and compassion and grace to them. You see, we always look back at Abraham, and we always think that he's some sort of Old Testament version of John MacArthur or John Piper, or who, insert any name you want of somebody you see as a favorite Bible teacher or a godly person. And we think that Abraham was walking in holiness and blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. But the fact of the matter is, he came from Ur, which is in Mesopotamia. And as Abram, who would later become Abraham, he was an idolater. He was from Mesopotamia. We tend to make him more godly and more holy than he really was. He, was, he and his father, they worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. That's what Joshua 24.2 even tells us. But God in his sovereignty chose him to be the father of a people that the Lord would call by his own name and that he would make for his own glory. So in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, he says that he should leave his home for another land that he would show him and that God would make his descendants a great nation, that he would protect them and bless them. And more importantly to us, that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. That's why Jesus could tell the Samaritan woman that salvation was from the Jews in John 4.22. And so Zacharias, being a priest, a teacher of the people, he realizes what happens with Mary, his relative. He sees his barren wife birth a son and the promised offspring from the Abrahamic covenant that he has taught his people of his village for so long. It's actually here. What seemed like an eternity, what may have drove him to complacency in in his service in the temple, by no doubt, he saw that the Lord was actually going to do what he said. And this has caused Zacharias to acknowledge and declare that God has remembered his covenant. Salvation has come. And then lastly, in verse 74 and 75, we see the goal of this deliverance. Verse 74 and 75 says, To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all all of our days. So in a reinstatement of the idea back in verse 71, that, uh, that is salvation from the hand of Israel's enemies, Zacharias describes the purpose of messianic salvation, what it's for, and so that he can serve God. And this, so this idea of being rescue is really subordinate to serving God. God essentially serves 
for saves for service rather. But there's also a moral quality to this service. It's not just serving God just to serve God. It says it will be done in holiness and righteousness. Now, if you, you're very keen in this world and you watch with a very sharp eye, you'll see this same sort of thing promoted in the Christian church today. There are countless conferences and rallies and movements and all that that are seeking to bind Christians together for the sake of what? Culture change, right? We want you to be a part of a movement, a movement so that we can take back our culture, right? We want to reclaim it. Let's take back America. All these pep talks and rallies and that sort of thing so that we can promote mom, dad, and apple pie and the way life was back in the 50s, right? And they wrap it up with a shiny God, Jesus, Bible wrapper. The gospel was never about cultural change. The gospel is about bringing freedom that is only found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is about reconciling God and man through Jesus Christ for his glory. The gospel is about seeking and saving the lost so that they might worship God in spirit and truth. A result of that may be culture change, and we have certainly seen that in the last couple thousands of years in history, but that's not the end goal. It's a byproduct. We don't go into all the nations to make disciples of our culture. We don't baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit so that we can teach them to obey our culture. And so as Zacharias is acknowledging what we should be doing here as well, and that we don't serve God to be in a mechanistic, check-the-box, I-fulfilled-my-duty sort of way. You don't go to church for the week to tell everybody at work that you went to church for the week. You don't read your Bible just so you can tell everybody that you've read your Bible. You do so because you love God. You love the things that God loves, like his bride, the church. You do so because you want to know him, and you want to worship him and him alone. Ephesians 4, 22 and 24 says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in, in according to the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. You see, we're called to serve him in holiness and righteousness. You and I have been delivered by God, not just to serve him, but to serve him in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And you and I can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ living in us. This is why Zacharias is rejoicing. And this is why you and I, we should be rejoicing this morning as well. Let's pray. Father, as we read about Zacharias and his praise to you and in his manner of his former life before the angel and how he doubted, Lord, so much, so many times we identify with the old Zacharias. We walk in doubt. We walk in fear. But Lord, help us to be like the praise of Zacharias in this text today. Help us to serve you in holiness and righteousness. 
Help us to serve you without fear. And Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Lord, we want to magnify your name in our lives. Help us to do that. Strengthen our hearts. Help our minds to be set upon the things of Christ and to put our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your many abundant blessings and your provisions. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray all these things. Amen.